Uh, years ago, I remember going on a camping trip with a high school Sunday school class and uh, in Colorado. And it was kind of cool because we got to take llamas with us. Llamas were our pack animals. And it was just, uh, they were so easy to, to go with, and sometimes they did run off. But anyway, uh, but I remember one time I, I reached down on the trail and I picked a wildflower. And one of the, one of the boys in the, in the group, he was kind of a cynic. And uh, he said, it's illegal to pick wildflowers in Colorado. You're going to hell. And I, and uh, you know, I could tell from the half smirk on his face that he was wondering what kind of reaction I was going to give. And I said, well, I'm sure glad you're not God. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, he didn't want to leave it at that, so he, he said, yeah, but I am God. So anyway, uh, but you know, it, it kind of raises, I think, one of the most important questions that we can ever ask, and that is, what is God like? What is, what is God like? Uh, is God eager to punish us? Or does God kind of a pushover who doesn't care what we do? What is God like? Today's message is the first of a series that we're going to start spend eight weeks on this fall called The Absolute Basics of the Christian Faith. And I'm, we're doing this series for two reasons. One is that so we're going to be able to learn it. I mean, we're going to have a solid foundation of these basics of the Christian faith, uh, especially if, if it's kind of new to you or not familiar or we'll have it learn it better. But the other is that we'll be able to talk about it. We'll, we'll, we'll be equipped so that we'll be able to have conversations with, with people, maybe friends and family who don't even share our faith. But we'll have enough of a, of a background and a knowledge has come to us that we'll be able to intelligently uh, talk about this. And, that, and the best thing that you can do to reach those goals, as uh, uh, Holly mentioned, as Polly said in the video, uh, is to be in a group. Um, now, in our church, we call them faith groups, but they're basically just a small group. And, and every week in this series, in your group, you're going to get to see two short videos uh, about the absolute basics, and then just talk about them. I mean, that's basically what you're going to do in the group. And the, I think the videos are pretty engaging, easy to kind of have conversation afterwards. So if you're interested in trying out a group uh, or if you have questions, I would encourage you to head to that table out in the foyer. And um, just there'll be someone there to visit with you and uh, say, okay, well, uh, walk you through the, the insert that's in your bulletin. It has a listing of groups today. Now, you're also fine at the table Hope, I think we were down maybe the last two copies of Phil Talon's book, uh, which ties in with this series. It's, this, it's the basis for it. It ties in really closely with the videos. And I would say, uh, if we run out of books, they can take your name and we'll get some more. Uh, we'll have them hopefully by the end of this week. Uh, but if you're not a reader, you say, I don't really read books. You know, this might be the perfect one for you then because the, sh the chapters are really short and the reading's really easy. And I think Phil Talon has some wonderful ways of describing stuff. Uh, and today we're looking at the question, what is God like? What's God like? Well, when my, I remember when my, preschool, my, my, my kids were toddlers and preschoolers and if I had been gone overnight and then I came home 
you know, I open the front door, and my kids hear me coming, and they yeah, walk in, and they just come running. Daddy's home, you know? And I get great big hugs, and one would plant themselves around one leg, and the other would plant themselves around the other leg, and then I'd have to walk through the house carrying them like this. Uh, and... Uh, Anyway, you know, there was a lot that they didn't know about their dad back then just because they were so little, you know. But there's a lot they did know. They knew that I was delighted in them. They knew I was devoted to them. I could be trusted. I would defend them. They knew I was an authority in their lives. As their father, I wanted them to know me. And the Bible tells us over and over that God wants to be known. Did you know that? God wants to be known by us. It used to be that the, the British monarchs would never interact with the commoners. But that, uh, that changed 49 years ago when Queen Elizabeth stepped out into the crowd one day in Sydney, Australia. And she reached out to people, and she took their hand, and she chatted with them for a little bit. And she continues to do that today. They call it a royal walkabout. And even though she's the monarch and sort of lofty and all that, she has made herself approachable. She, she wants to be real. And, and at least within the limits of those situations, she wants to be known. And God wants to be known for who he is. I think it's easy a lot of times to get wrong, wrong ideas about God, don't you? I mean, you, for example, for example, it would be it'd be really easy to blame God for blasting the Bahamas with that hurricane. Well, I would say that's a wrong idea about God. Because God is not the same as the weather. And God is not the one who gives you cancer or causes your car accident. And, of course, neither is God, you know, neither is it a sign of God's favor that if you're healthy or wealthy. God reveals himself to us because he knows that if he doesn't, we're going to make it up. We're going to make up our own version of God. Each Sunday in this series, we're going to be watching a, uh, a part of one of those videos that you'll get to see all of in, in our groups and here's a clip uh, about who is God. Let's watch. Okay. So C.S. Lewis was saying that if God is love, if God is loving, then it follows that God has never existed alone with no one to love. In eternity past, before anything or anyone else was created, this one God lived in relationship. I, I love the, the musical chord uh, metaphor in this video. Three individual notes, bum, bum, bum. When you put them together, make one harmonious chord. And this triad is three notes existing in one harmonious relationship. Well, if you, if you watch the rest of the video in your group or if you read that chapter in the book, uh, it'll say this. 
it says the Father is the source, the Son is the way, the Spirit is the power. Okay? Father is the source, the Son is the way, the Spirit is the power. Now, let's say that you may decide to make a sound with your voice. Bum, 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 okay? Your mind sends the message, that's the source. The, it, your vocal cords come together to make the sound, and the lungs send air to the vocal cords, that's the power. And yet, to us, it all seems like just one thing, right? Uh, the, the source, the way, and the power all seem like just one action. So, I think that the idea of the Trinity does bring up an important question. Why do we Christians say that we are monotheists if we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How can we say that the three are one? Well, it's because that we believe that these three are of one will, of one mind. There's no conflict between them. They, the three exist in perfect harmony. All right, let's open our Bibles now to Acts chapter 17. We're going to start with verse 16. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible this morning, it's on page 1111. Uh, and one thing that we do here at this church is that we give away Bibles. And so if you uh, want a Bible to read at home, uh, we have one for you. You'll find them at the Connection Center which is right next to the elevator, and you'll find a little display there. You can just take one. It's yours. Now, the Apostle Paul traveled around the Roman Empire in the decades following Jesus' death and resurrection, and he told people about Jesus. He told them about the gospel, and he presented this God who wants to be known. Uh, the, uh, and then verse 16 says this, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas, he's waiting in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was, what, say the, with me, he was, it was full of idols. The city was full of idols. People of Athens, they love their idols, their gods. Now, the city was packed with statues, shrines, altars, temples. Uh, when you first approached the city back then, you could see the towering statue of Athena, the warrior goddess, uh, the namesake of Athens. She stood 38 feet tall and was covered with ivory and gold. Of course, we know the, the Greeks believed in many gods. Uh, Zeus was the king of gods, although he was not the creator. According to Greek mythology, Zeus was um, Zeus's father, Cronus, uh, was, uh, he, he swallowed all of Zeus's older siblings to prevent them from usurping his power. But when Zeus was born, his mother Rhea wrapped, him, wrapped a stone in a blanket and gave uh, the father that to eat. Meanwhile, baby Zeus was whisked away to safety. And then, uh, as a grown-up god, Zeus was uh, supposedly the one who controlled the weather and loved to throw thunderbolts. Ping, ping, ping. Okay? Well, then, of course, other gods, there was, there was Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility, love, and beauty. Uh, she and her son Eros, or Cupid, uh, caused Zeus to fall in love with a human woman named Europa. And, of course, all the gods and all the goddesses, they were enmeshed in these stories of conflict and trickery. In other words, the gods were just like us. The gods and the goddesses were like humans, writ large. Anyway... Paul sees all of these idols in Athens, and he's distressed. Why? 
because he knows this is not who God is. This is not what God is like. Verse 17 says that Paul goes into the public market. It was a place where he could, you know, as a newcomer, as a teacher, he could promote, and other people did this too, promote their philosophies or their teachings. And then verse 18 says that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Well, who are the Epicureans and the Stoics? They, they were the elite thinkers in Athens, and, and really they didn't go for all those Greek gods either. The Epicureans taught that, ha that happiness was the highest good. Of course, that didn't mean, you know, going wild with sensual pleasures. The, the Epicureans valued restraint, leading to peace of mind, bodily comfort. Uh, but, the, but the Epicureans believed that God was distant. God was unknowable. Uh, that God didn't get, in, didn't get involved with earthly affairs. Really didn't care that much. Now, the Stoics believed that uh, they valued reason and intellectualism. Uh, knowledge leads to virtue. Ignorance leads to vice. And they understood reason as the God who permeates all of creation. To a Stoic, God and the world are pretty much synonymous. And you know, all these ideas are still around today. Some religions today believe in polytheism, which has nothing to do with people named Polly. And, uh, but polytheists worship many gods like most of the people in Athens did. Some Eastern religions today believe in pantheism, like the Stoics, where God and the world are pretty much the same thing. Some people today believe in deism, where, like the Epicureans did. Deism believes in a God uh, that is uninvolved, uncaring, unknowable. To a deist, God is like a watchmaker who winds it up and then walks away. Paul says, God is not like that. Not like polytheism, not like pantheism, not like deism. When the Epicureans and Stoics hear Paul, uh, they, you know, they, they react kind of smugly. Who is this guy? Verse 18, it says, some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, when Paul talked about Jesus and the resurrection, apparently they thought, Resurrection, in Greek, Anastasis, was a goddess. They thought Jesus and Anastasis were gods like their gods. And then the Epicureans and Stoics invited Paul to their philosophy forum um, at the Areopagus. And, you, you know, I think you kind of have to credit Paul for uh, knowing the art of oral persuasion because he believes these people are mistaken about what God is like, but he doesn't lead with that. Instead, he begins with a compliment. You notice that? Verse 22. Paul then stood up at the meeting uh, in the Areopagus uh, and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And then he goes on to tell them that he had seen this altar 
to an unknown God. Now, why did uh, Athens have these altars to unknown gods? Well, according to Greek tradition, there was once a terrible plague in Athens. A lot of people were dying, and so they sacrificed to all their gods to try to take away the plague. And when that still didn't work, they, they built new altars to unknown gods and sacrificed to them. So Paul tells them that their unknown God is the God. And he tells them what this God is like. In verses 24 and 25, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This is not what the people of Athens thought God was like. Paul is saying this, that this, this, this God is perfect in power. This is a God who made everything, which makes him very unlike Zeus or Athena or any of the other gods or goddesses. And this all-powerful God is separate from creation, not identical with it like, this, like the Stoics' idea of God. And this all-powerful God is involved in his world, giving and sustaining life. Uh, so he's, he's unlike the Epicureans' idea of a distant, detached God. And not only is this God perfect in power, he's perfect in knowledge. And verse 26, Paul gives an example of the wisdom and knowledge of God when he says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Then he says, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. The, po the polytheists, the pantheists, and the deists of Athens, they don't know any God like this. This is the God who wisely marks out the lands and the limits of the nations. And not only is God perfect in power and perfect in knowledge, he's also perfect in goodness. In verse 27, uh, it points to uh, God's goodness when Paul says, God did this so that they, that is the people of the nations, would seek him and perhaps reach out to him, for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He's saying that God's purposes are kind, not selfish. God doesn't order us around like slaves to do his menial labor. He loves us. He's reaching out to us, hoping that we will respond and reach out to him. And, and even if now we are living far from God and far from what God wants, he's not far from us. Isn't that great news? No matter where we are, God is not far from us. But a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good presents kind of a problem, I think. If God is so perfectly powerful, knowing, and good, then why doesn't he fix everything? Why is this world such a mess? You know, why do evil and suffering just keep going on and on? That is a great question. And I think we ought to tackle that one next week. <laughs> that okay with you? All right. Now, but, but Christians have always wrestled with these questions. 
But we do not give up on any of these three qualities of God. We continue to believe that God is perfect in power, perfect in knowledge, perfect in goodness. Here's a story that, that might help us to picture that. A farmer went out to do his evening chores. Uh, and, and inside the barn, he, he spotted these five sparrows who had gotten themselves underneath and trapped under a bunch of chicken wire. Now, there was still a small opening where they could escape, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't find their way. Now, the farmer had the power and the knowledge to pull back the chicken wire and set them free, yet every time he got close, they became so scared, they just started fluttering like crazy, and, and the farmer was afraid they would hurt themselves, maybe even kill themselves. And, and so his heart just went out to these little birds. And because of the goodness of his heart, he desperately wanted to help them. As he pondered him, all of this, he found himself wishing that he had the power to become one of them. He wished he were powerful enough to become weak and to become a sparrow and to show them the way out. He would be their way to salvation. And that is why our perfectly powerful, perfectly knowing, perfectly good God stooped to become one of us. I'm sure we've all heard the ad line, Are you in good hands? Today I want to ask you, are you in God's hands? Are you in God's hands? Are you in the hands of the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all the time? Are you in God's hands? This same God spoke to the prophet Isaiah, and we find this in chapter 41, verse 10. And I'm going to invite you, would you say it with me? So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Where else would you want to be but in God's hands? And so today, I want to ask you, will you put yourself in the hands of this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God? Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer because suffering is a part of life. Sometimes we'll be treated unfairly, yeah. So it may be that by next Sunday, one of us will be tragically killed or, or died suddenly. We don't know. Will we understand everything in this life? Absolutely not. But we can put ourselves in God's hands. And we can trust him with our lives. And we can trust him with the, for the things that we can't make sense of it right now. Are you in God's hands? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, oh Lord God, sometimes our, we keep our world really small. 
it's just our little corner of the world and our little slice of history and, and where we live and what we're doing and the things we got to get done. And Lord, you see the big picture. You see it all from start to finish. All the nations, every individual, from past to the end, to the future. And so, Lord, we want to be able to trust you with our lives, to follow your will, to follow your way in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your great power, your great knowledge, and your great goodness and love. Lord, when we can't make sense of, of so many things, we know that we are, when we are in your hands, that is good enough. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, before I turn it over to the band to lead us in our closing song, uh, I want to say a little bit about this series that we've just started today. I know a lot of you, you have committed to read the book. You got a book. And uh, we'll get more. Uh, I want everybody to have one who wants one. Um, and a lot of you are, are in a group or you're signed up for one. And, you know, I think we're going to be pushing 300 people in groups, adults in groups. That's just awesome, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, and I hope also that you will commit to being in worship every possible Sunday uh, from now to November 3rd through the rest of this series. So as we make these commitments, uh, I would like for you to stand with me, all of us stand if you would, and let's join our hearts and our voices together as we commit ourselves into God's hands. So the prayers will be up on the screen and uh, two slides worth, and I want us to pray it together. All right, let's pray. Great God, we commit ourselves to learn the basics of faith over these eight when we are in worship or in our group or reading at home. Show us who you are. Show us who we are. Open our hearts to what you have done and are doing today. We put ourselves into your hands. By your power, make us like your Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.